I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 60, no, 76, 76. We're just getting so old, uh, Mark LaCour, I'm forgetting even how old we are anymore. Yeah, it's um, we've made it to seventy six episodes. And you know what, James? We could never have done it without all our fans that are out there and all the listeners. So, um, you know, let's dedicate this episode to all the people that follow our podcast. We love you to death. Yeah, we love y'all. Whether you've been with us for two weeks or the full ride, we're very thankful because there is a deluge of content out there, and there's a lot of ways you can spend your time. And you choose to spend it listening to us, us knuckleheads every every now and again so we we really appreciate y'all um let's also kick it off with a little love for lsu we had another person from i don't know if it was the spe group reach out to us but mark why don't you fill us in yeah so it was a guy's name is jade he's a treasurer for the uh, lsu uh, uh spe group so the society for petroleum engineers and they're raising money uh to go to the spe annual technical conference and expo and so they reached out to us a while back, and we've been in contact with them. And so I thought maybe we just mention the fact that they're raising money and give a link to their sponsorship uh, page. So if any of our listeners out there want to help these bright young engineers that are going to school in LSU get to the, the uh, annual technical conference and expo, you know, chip in five, ten, twenty bucks, whatever you can afford. It's it's a good group of guys, and and they're out there hustling trying to make this happen. All right, I will make a quick link to that at tribrocket.com forward slash LSU. So if you want to see more about that, do that. And our good friend Brian Mann sent us a pretty cool email. He didn't send all company, but he definitely got the word out. So tell us about it. Yeah, so hats off to you, Brian. You, um, Brian uh, works for Apache, and uh, Brian sent a link to our podcast to all 75-plus members of his land group internally. And we love stuff like that, right? Um, you know, we hope that our podcast is valuable. Um, and if you send it to people that you know, and they follow us and they find value, that just makes us happy. Um, and this is, goes back to uh, the kind of dare that I put up there a while back to have people do the company-wide email and include our podcast and take a screenshot of it. So we, we've now had, I guess, th- this one is not quite that, but it's awfully close. So we now had two people pull this off. And, and we appreciate everybody out there that's that's done this. Yeah, very much, very much. Actually was visiting with NOV yesterday and they they posted their 0.5 episode with uh, Ben Facker and Tony Pink on their Yammer as well. So lots of lots of exposure going on out there and everyone being very thankful because we all need to learn more and more. And this is a this is a growing experience for both of us. Yeah, and it's also you're right earlier there's so much noise out there that it's kind of hard. I mean even for us James, you and I struggle sometimes to find good quality content out there. So, you know, this is uh, our effort to actually put good quality content out there because even, you know, even we struggle sometimes to find good stuff. So hopefully our audience out there, you know, appreciates what we do. Um, I know I get a lot of feedback from people saying they, they love what we do. And we get straight to the point and, you know, explain things where, uh, you know, everyday people can understand it. So let's just continue to do that. Well, let's try and break it down because this is the first Friday Q&A. And one of our, one of our, I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of messages over the last couple of weeks, people saying, oh, I love the first ride of Q&A. Don't have a question. I just want to say I love it. So let's get right into the questions. And we're going to kick it off with Andrew Krasnoff, Valuation Manager at Ernst & Young. This small little company, Ernst & Young. <laughs> I think that's really cool that we're hearing from, from people at Ernst & Young. So, hi, Mark. I've heard you talk about standardization in the oil and gas industry 
and provide some examples of how complex and high cost the operations of the major oil and gas companies is due to standardization. I've seen also seen studies that show the smaller focused oil and gas companies that concentrate on a core region and strategy often outperform their larger peers. Is this because they are better at, better at standardization? If not, what is the major driver of the independent's ability to perform? Thanks in advance. Appreciate all of your great insight. Yeah, yeah great question, Andrew. So the answer is yes and no. I know it's not what you want to hear. Um, so what happens is the independents of smaller companies, let's take somebody like Log, uh, who's a small independent deep water operator in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and if you know anything about deep water, those words are not supposed to gather small and independent and deep water. They never go together. Um, but Log is so nimble and so quick because they're small that they actually outperform. Their success rate, rate in the Gulf of Mexico is better than the majors, better than Chevron or BP or Exxon. But it's because they can make decisions quickly because they're small, right? And so there's a flat organization structure. Um, you know, they have a, a VP of deep water development who calls the shots out there instead of a whole team of people all over the world. And so they're able to outperform because they can move quickly. Now, they also standardize. I just happen to know that Log uh, tends to buy uh, trees, subsea trees from FMC, FMC Technology. And they tend to buy what's called the standard tree, not that there really is a standard tree. That helps them in, in certain areas. But you take somebody as big as Exxon, who has the reach and the scope of Exxon, and they can do stuff so much cheaper than somebody like Log when you look at a global level because they're so big. So it's um, the standardization comes into play, but it's, it's really where the companies uh, learn how to utilize what their core competency is. In Exxon's case, they're huge, and they know how to use that to their advantage. In Log's case, they're small, so they're nimble, and they know how to use it to their advantage. So hopefully it helps uh, answer your question there, uh, Andrew. And I just wanted to piggyback on that because it's something that we talked about off the mic a couple of weeks ago, and it has to do with the fact that any company, no matter what size they are, the great ones, they do one thing and do it very well. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, Exxon is an oil and gas engineering and project management company. That's their core competency, and that's what they spend their time on. And they're, I, I think they're the best on the planet at it. So, yeah, it's... Um, Companies tend to figure out what their core competency is and stay there. Definitely. All right. Let's move on over to Andrew. And, Andrew goodness. Andrew Fager. Um, he is from Exa Corporation. And here's his question. Hi, James and Mark. Greetings from San Francisco. Big fan of the Oil & Gas Podcast. Wow. We've got listeners in San Francisco. That's awesome. I'm going to skip down to his question. My question, being a mechanical engineer with little knowledge of the industry, I'm interested in getting a broad picture of the oil and gas industry. Do you have any recommendations for uh, for resources, books, videos, websites, et cetera, that you, that you think accomplish this? I ask for both my own edification, but also for the future of our business. I think our simulation technology could be applied to many areas within the industry, and having a broader picture would help us identify potential areas. Best regards, Andrew. Yeah, go get them, Andrew, because that's how you should be thinking, right? Don't figure out where is the one place that you fit. Where else can you fit? You know, land and expand. That business model is going to work really well for y'all. Uh, one of the resources, and I'll do some shameless self-promotion here, but a lot of people find it useful. If you go to my website, Andrew, and you actually go to learn about oil and gas, I have a page. And that page is a, a list of books, podcasts, videos, stuff that we recommend because I get asked this question so much, I built a, a page for it. Um, and so that would be a, a good place to start. And then there's a lot of books out there that I have a personal fondness for for my clients and my clients tend to not know oil and gas and so they, they want to get up to speed so one is called um, an oil and gas 
the oil and gas industry, a non-technical guide uh, written by a guy named uh, Joseph uh, Hilliard. Great book. Um, another good one is uh, LNG, a non-technical guide. Uh, once again, it's written by uh, Michael uh, Tusani. And then there's um, one called Fundamentals of Oil and Gas, and it's written by a guy named Smart Dalavith. Um, these are all great books if you're learning to, if you're looking to learn the entire industry. Um, and in your case, you know, it, it's obvious that, that y'all would fit in upstream, but I, I would be willing to bet there's a need for your simulation technology in midstream and, and downstream. And the other thing is the service companies would have an interest in it because it's something they could resell to their clients, the major operators out there. So you're thinking about this the right way. And, and hopefully, Andrew, that um, gives you some guidance on, on some books and some websites and stuff to help uh, get, get yourself up to speed. Yeah, I'll follow up on that and say um, I, I feel your pain, brother Andrew, <laughs> because I moved from Michigan to Texas in 2010 and went straight into the oil business and felt like I was I was basically hearing people speak Chinese. And so when I first wrote a blog post back in the day, it was called Seven Free Resources for Newbies in Oil and Gas. And there's a lot of, obviously, seven resources in there with a ton of information and knowledge. So I will put that into the show notes. The other thing, Mark, I haven't talked to you this, about this off the mic, but I might as well bring it right, bring it up right now. For the last, I don't know, five or six days, I've actually been reading John D. Rockefeller's biography, Titan. And you have often told me, James, you got to get to know the industry more. You got to get to know the industry more. And I haven't really, I mean, technical papers and things like that can be overwhelming to me, but history is is always fascinating to me. And I didn't see it coming, but I, I, I'm getting a, a thorough schooling in the foundations of this industry through that book. Yeah, that's the that's where Standard Oil came from, right? Um, that that is the beginning of the commercialization of the oil and gas industry. So that, that might be another book that um, that uh, Andrew wants to read. Yeah, it's a, it's it's really good, and and I'll I'll actually go ahead and admit I'm I'm listening to it on Audible. <laughs> so it's easier to say that say reading than anything, but they do have it on Audible as well, and it's written by Ron Chernow. And if you're a fan of history at all, you know his his histories are pretty awesome. All right, let's move on to Ahmed Ali. And he wants to know, Mark, James, great podcast with solid content and loving the interviews with folks from the industry and LinkedIn experts. Keep it going. Awesome. I'm not an expert in economics or trade policy, but in order to support the domestic oil and gas industry, would it make sense? And what are the implications of placing a tariff on imported oil from places such as Saudi Arabia? Would this provide a boost and help domestic companies compete or would this do more harm? Thanks and look forward to your response. Yeah, so on the surface, you think that would be a good thing to do, right? The same way we have tariffs on imported automobiles. But in the grand scheme of things, no, it would it actually would hurt things. So one of the things that benefits the oil and gas industry is a global commodity. And the less that governments uh, step in and tax it, the better it is for the entire industry. Um, Saudi Arabia can get oil out of the ground really cheap, but their total cost is actually much higher than what most people think it is because they have to maintain these social programs. And I'm telling you, you know, when, when oil gets back to 55 so dollars a barrel, our frack fields are going to rock and roll and we're going to flood the, the market. The other thing that that people don't understand is that in the U.S., our refineries and our, our older petrochemical plants are designed to uh, process the heavy oil from Canada and the Middle East, not the light oil that we produce here uh, in the U.S. So um, from a, a market point of view, we're better off selling that sweet crude, which we lifted the export ban, so now we can, to countries that like that light sweet crude, like the, uh, Central America and, and uh, parts of um, uh, South America. And then we buy the crude that we like. So it's truly a global market. So uh, we don't want uh, a, a 
attacks or any type of um, a tariff place on any oil that comes into this country because we don't want it to happen to our oil that we're going to export to other countries. Yeah, that just thinking it through real quick as you were talking, I mean, that seems like if we did that, we'd get a North Korea response from from some people in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> you have crossed the red line. Um, it just it it would feel I, I it just feels like it it would not be a great idea. Yeah, and and you know if you look at the automotive industry, when um, the government, the federal government, started to do that to help protect our domestic manufacturers, it actually hurt our manufacturers in the long run because it cr- it gave them a crutch to stand up on. And what happened is companies like uh, Toyota and Honda and Nissan came and built factories here in the U.S. Well, now they're not imported vehicles anymore; they're manufactured here. And all of a sudden, GM and Ford and Chrysler had to compete, and they they couldn't for a while. Um, they couldn't they couldn't stand up to the quality. And so if we never would have had those import tariffs, I think that the, our domestic automobile manufacturers would have had to up their ante quicker, which actually would have been better for them long term wise. So it's the same thing with the oil and gas industry. We don't want anything propped up. Government intervention actually distorting the market. I've never heard of such such talk, Marco Gore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move over to Patrick uh, Bouchamp. He asks, really simple question. Is it possible to power a drilling rig using solar panels? If not, are there any applications for solar panels within the oil and gas industry? And what are some examples, if you know of any great show and big fan of the first Friday Q&A, very insightful and informative? What do you got for him, Mark? So, Patrick, technically it would be possible. So modern drilling rigs are all electric. Um, the t- uh, top drive is electric, um, and they power the electric top drive. And if they have a turntable, they power that as well uh, with some big generators on the rig. Or if it's a land rig and they can grab factory power, they can grab factory power. So technically, if you wanted to build it, put enough solar panels up, you could eventually have enough amperage and wattage to, to run a, a, a drill rig. Is it practical? No. It, it's just, it's it's not cost, it, it doesn't work from a cost point of view. The thing about solar, and this is, this is something a lot of people don't understand. So when you look at energy of any type, you have to look at what is the energy actually cost? How much does it cost to... Um, to grab that energy, right? To, and then how much does it cost to store it? Solar is free. And you go, well, so the cost of solar is free, but to capture that energy, solar is expensive. Solar cells are very expensive. There's nothing and, free in this world, right? Yeah, and then, the, and then to store it is even more expensive. So from a BTU point of view, uh, oil and gas is so much cheaper in, than solar because in the beginning, oil is more expensive, right? But to capture, it's relatively cheap. It's not that expensive to build, to have a drill rig. And then the stored is free. It's stored in the ground, right? We don't have to build a battery store oil and gas. So um, you could do it. Now, let me t- say this much. There's a lot of places in the oil and gas industry where solar is used a lot. When you need lower voltage um, uh, type of applications, so sensors, valves, um, even some activators out there, there's solar everywhere because it's really easy to throw up a small solar panel and, there you, and a battery, and now you have electricity. But it just can't run. You know, it's not going to run a 15,000 horsepower top drive it's just i mean you could but it would be you know miles of solar panels well that's what i was i was thinking as you were answering i I kept going back in my mind to the rig tour and seeing that massive generator that they had there and trying to imagine james it was four massive four yeah four four and i i I mean that thing offshore they'd have to have how many hectares of solar panels to power that thing yeah Yeah, Uh, but but it, it but you do, especially in the frack fields in the last couple of years, there's a lot of solar out there, like I said, running smaller, lower voltage um, applications, just like you see them on the roads now running the, the lights at night for like the curve sign. That's a low voltage application, and solar is very applicable for that. 
Um, anytime you, you know you need to run several hundred horsepower electric engines, it's, it gets harder to do that with solar. Yeah, and I mentioned this. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but you know, if you go up and drive around the west side of Fort Worth and further west outside of the city, you will see all kinds of um, production facilities where wells have been brought into production, and it's exactly what you're talking about, Mark. There's all kinds of sensors and everything there, and so you'd always see solar panels out there running those things. Yeah, and which is which is good. So before solar got as cheap as it was. They actually had a, a ferry batteries back and forth out there. And how, you know, how harmful is that for an environment? Somebody drops a lead acid battery somewhere and it breaks open and you have, you know, the lead and the acid on the ground. Now with inexpensive solder, they slap those, those babies up there, stick a lithium ion battery and they're good to go. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Moving on to Chris McHale. He is retired and here is his question. First off, great show. And thank you for providing your views into issues around oil and gas. Before I start, I'm not an oil and gas veteran, so it helps when folks like my it helps folks like myself when you explain oil and gas concepts and issues in layman's terms. A first question, uh, a few questions below. First, uh, so we'll take this one at a time, then Mark. If you had to predict which commodity do you think will rebound first, crude or natural gas? I'd like to think gas simply because developing countries, once they have infrastructure in place, need to supply electricity, which is true in rural places such as India, where it is lacking. Thoughts? Yeah, so um, you got uh, oils go rebound, and but it's, uh, it depends on your definition of rebound. So I say rebound is you know fifty to sixty dollars, and I think that's I, I'm, I'm still sticking. That's happened this month, even though it doesn't look like it'll be <laughs> oh right. <laughs> believe you got to believe, Mark Lacour. I, I need a war in the Middle East. Come on, folks. Oh, um, oh no, no, <laughs> no, no, I know, no, 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 no. no. Um, but oils go rebound first. Um, the gas, we're having to build this global infrastructure. So think of all the LNG plants that are being built here in the U.S. They've kind of slowed down because gas is so cheap, although they're still going to be built. They're still going to come online. But then you have to have another round of infrastructure built in the countries that buy the LNG. Um, you have to have build import terminals and regasification plants. So um, oil will come back first. Gas will come back. We're looking at, at price of LNG to rebound the very end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So um, that's that's my thoughts around that. Yeah, I, I have a feeling you, you might say that. All right, number two, if there is such a push in petrochemical uh, and products, uh, petrochemical products made from feedstock, is it safe to say that once the global economy picks back up and consumer demand increases, we will naturally see a rise in oil and gas prices? Or do we need more people to drive and fly in order to see much more of a profound impact? Yeah, so this is a very, very good question. Every year, the amount of, of fuel, liquid fuel, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel that we use here in the U.S. goes down. So we use less transportation fuels every year. Part of that is we're building more efficient vehicles, and part of that is we're not driving around as much as we used to. Um, and you can credit that both of those things to technology uh, if, you, if you think that through. Um, so the, the amount that people drive or fly in the U.S. is not going to affect the, the prices of, of, of transportation fuels. In fact, we're we're in a glut in diesel right now. We're headed to a glut in gasoline. So those prices are going to stay low for quite a while. What really affects um, the, the price of crude natural gas is exactly what he's talking about, the global economy. As the global economy picks back up, as China starts building more infrastructure, as India starts building more electrical plants, you're going to see that the pendulum will swing from this low crude price environment to higher crude price and natural gas environment. But that higher price, unless something horrible happens, is not going to be eighty or ninety or hundred dollars a barrel again. It's going to be, you know, fifty, fifty-five, sixty dollars a barrel. So, uh, you know, that that's that's 
that's the impact that, or that's the results that's going to happen. You're not going to have this huge impact where we're back at $100 a barrel again, unless something major happens in the Middle East. All right. We're going, we're going in on the third question. Let's, let's tiptoe in here or just bash on in. I hate to bring up politics, but do you see any major impact on oil and gas? Should Clinton win or Trump? Mark, can you run for president with James as your VP and help out my friends and neighbors in the oil and gas industry? Thanks and keep doing what you what you do. <laughs> you know what's so funny about that, James? And you don't know this. I had somebody reach out to me on LinkedIn the other day and ask me the exact same thing. Can I run for president and you be the VP? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment, but I am I'm just not, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm far too honest to be a politician, I think. And, yeah, and I don't, I don't like politics. I, you know, I, so I, so thank you for the the, the vote of confidence there. Um, as, as far as what's going to happen, so if uh, Clinton wins, um, she already has a pretty regimented, uh, what I would consider anti-oil and gas um, process in place uh, that she wants to push out, and 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 so I think that would hurt the oil and gas industry. Trump, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. So he's already named his. Um, his energy administrator, and for the first time since 1972, it's somebody from the oil and gas industry. Um, Trump has already said that he is going to um, get rid of a lot of the executive orders that President Obama did that's hurt our industry. He's going to open federal lands to drilling. He's going to remove um, the ability for the EPA to actually go out and, and stop uh, oil and gas companies from, from doing proper uh, prospecting out there. So strictly from an oil and gas point of view, they're, they're, they're radically different, um, you know, um, Clinton would hurt the industry and Trump looks like he supports it 110%. Yeah. And, and whether or not any of those things are true, once you get elected, we'll, <laughs> right. see, we'll, we'll see. So they'll put that big caveat in, on it, but at least the rhetoric is there, right? Yeah. The rhetoric is there. And um, let's just move on. I'm very uncomfortable because let's be honest. Could I really follow up Joe Biden? I mean, come on. I, yeah. I need, I would need many more six packs in my life. Trans Am probably. <laughs> anyway. Hey, I sort I sort of like that trans am. <laughs> oh, that's that's an onion article. I'll have to put it, I'll have to put it in the show notes. We're having an inside joke going here. All right, let's uh, get on to Rob Waters. He is um, Mountaineer from Mountaineer Keystone. All right, by 2020, the Appalachian Basin is set to have three cracker plants in the region. The Great Pittsburgh area, the Greater Pittsburgh area, is beaming with hopes of tremendous economic ripple effect from the recent confirmation. Of shell ethylene crackers of shells ethylene cracker plant in Beaver County, about 30 minutes from downtown. There are already plans for hotel construction, new home development, and a revitalization of the area surrounding the site, formerly a zinc smelter. Interesting. Recent estimates show that con construction should create 6,000 jobs, which will result in 600 permanent positions once completed. What economic effects have been realized in areas with existing cracker facilities, and is there inherent risk in Shell's singular focus on ethylene? Rob, cool question. <laughs> I'm going to say, this is a, he went deep on that one. Yeah, and he's really thought this through. So let me tell you, Rob, some of the economic effects that uh, people don't realize that have materialized because of these ethylene cracker plants that are being stood up, schools, roads, hospitals, grocery stores, um, you know, every place where um, the, the ethylene crackers have been stood up and, and, and been lit, um, this, the, uh, the quality of education goes up because now they can afford to build new schools and hire uh, new teachers or give existing teacher pay raises or get them new books or get them iPads for the classroom. 
And so I think that's one of the things. Also, in the areas where these ethylene crackers have been stood up, um, healthcare, the quality of healthcare is going. They can build new hospitals, have more ambulances. Um, same way with fire departments. Their their time to um, on site when there's a fire it gets diminished when they build an ethylene cracker because they the fire department can buy new equipment, new trucks, whatever. So there's a lot of economic effects that you don't hear anybody talking about, and it's all built around the prosperity that that plant and those jobs bring to that part of the country. As far as Shell's uh, risk focus on ethylene, that's a, that's a really that's a really good catch there. In the short term, when I say short term, I want to say the next say five five to eight years, I say no. I, I actually think that one of our predictions for 2017 is that we're going to be in a global shortage of ethylene. And if you're in a global shortage of ethylene, Shell's focus on producing ethylene is very smart. Now, what naturally happens in any market when there's a when there's a, a undersupply, such as the ethylene, you have other companies put money into producing ethylene. So do I think that more ethylene crackers will get built and eventually we'll have more ethylene than the market can use? Yes. I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, that may happen 20 years from now, um, but in the you know next five or 10 years, I don't see that happening. So, uh, Rob, uh, that great question. I hope that you know, helped kind of clear that up a little bit. And I just want a quick follow-up on that. What is the feedstock that ethylene is most used for? It's plat. The Wait, what is the feedstock well, or, or, that ethylene? Yeah, well, no, that, that ethylene is converted into. Is it plastic? Plastics. Plastics. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, that's what I thought. So basically what you're you, – you, I, I don't think you could be wrong in this because you have China and India only modernizing more and more, and they're all going to need plastic. Yeah, plastic is so integral to the modern uh, human life. I mean everything from Tupperware to light switches, which is stuff that the uh, rural – uh, residents of China and India right now don't have, they don't have light switches. They don't have Tupperware, but they're, they're going to have it right They're have this growing middle class and new houses and new ways to make a living and new ways for transportation, new medical uh, devices, new medical care, and all that requires plastics. I think I've rattled this off before, but in the U S um, 85% of everything in a hospital emergency room is, is comes to oil and gas industries, plastics. Yeah. Even the MacBook I'm typing on right now, all of everything. I mean, you just look everywhere. It's, it's, it's all over the place. All right. Moving on to Eddie Schroeder. What a good segue, James, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I do what I can for the people. All right. Eddie Schroeder. Uh, he's a land intern at Antero resources. I've always been a huge fan of Apple products, especially Macs. I started to realize that they aren't very common in the office. Is this because because of programming issues, or is it because Macs are so expensive? Also, do you see Macs becoming more popular for the industry in the near future? He's given us the go-ahead to just geek out, Mr. Mark LaCour. Yeah, Eddie, if, if you don't know this, James and I are both big Apple fans. Um, and, and I can it's very easy for me to answer. So in the beginning, when, um, when uh, Apple started making Macs, um, they were so radically different than Windows, and Windows is 100% of all gas energy used to Windows, which is bottom line. And, and that, it may not be 100%, maybe 99.9999, but it's a large portion of it. But the other thing is a lot of people understand is the Windows world is designed for large enterprises. So you have something called Active Directory. And basically, Active Directory, Directory allows me to control every Windows machine in my, in my infrastructure. So if I have 10,000 employees, I can push I can shut them down. I can require them to change their passwords. I can update their software. I can restrict what they load. I can do it from one place. And that makes it very easy to run an enterprise in the Windows world. Up until just recently, that didn't exist in the Mac world. However, <laughs> Apple figured out that that was a good market for them. So they now have something, it's called Apple Server. We use it here at Modal Point. And with that, I can control all of my people's Macs, iPads, and iPhones. I have the same 
um, functionality. Actually, I have more functionality than uh, Active Directory and Microsoft. So now the the engineering, the enterprise engineering is built into the product so that the, the companies can start adopting them. Do I think Max will ever be really popular in the oil and gas industry? Somewhere down the road, yeah. Um, what's happening and is you're seeing a lot of companies, a lot of oil and gas companies implement something called uh, bring your own device. And so base, basically, if I'm working for, say, Anadarko, Anadarko, as an employee, they give me $1,000 or whatever, and they go, go get whatever you want, and, and you know we'll put our current load on it, right? So if I want a Mac, I get a Mac. If I want a Linux, I get a Linux. If I want a Windows, I get a Windows. And that's, that's actually my device. And then what happens is Anadarko puts its load on it so it can control its stuff. And this way, um, it's cheaper for the company. But it's also easier for the employee because you have a piece of hardware that you want that you use. Um, you know, we're I'm you know, like I said, MotorPoint's a, a all Mac shop, but I run Office. I run Microsoft Office. Uh, Microsoft's done a great job of integrating Office into uh, OS X and uh, iOS um, because Office is the standard business document language of oil and gas of all, all big enterprises, right? So the, even Microsoft is helping Apple um, be able to penetrate the enterprise, and then. Things like iPhones, I, the, I know several large companies um, who offer their employees both Android and iPhones as their mobile device, and overwhelmingly, 70, 70, 85% of employees pick an, an Apple device. So Apple, is, you know, Microsoft came in oil and gas from the top down, Apple's coming in from the bottom and moving up. So it, you will see a larger proliferation of um, uh, Apple devices in oil and gas as we move forward. At the same time, I'm thinking there are so many different applications and programs that engineers and geologists and everybody downloads and uses, whether it's a SaaS service, software as a service, SaaS product, or something that actually lives on your desktop, that's going to require a lot of developers changing the way they do things too. Uh, we just went to a breakfast about that, right? Remember yep. uh, cloud yeah. technology oh, yeah. partners, Amazon Web Services? So even that, you know, we heard them say they have yet to find a piece of software they couldn't emulate in, in their model. So even that, you're taking it off the desktop and you're putting it in the cloud, and then you access that cloud as long as you have internet connectivity for whatever device you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point, great point. All right, we are going to wrap things up with Howard. Um, he is he he he. We talked about him on a couple a couple of shows ago when I didn't know what drilling on uncom but uncompleted wells ducks are. So let's get right into this, James and Mark. First, I want to thank you for your weekly podcast. There is something new in our industry every week, and you guys. Uh, are ready to, you guys are ready to discuss it. Second, our company provides storage and processing equipment for basically the upstream market with some midstream and downstream penetration. My question is regarding to tracking ducts, drilling but uncompleted wells activity. There are several companies touting reports on where they are and who has them, but what I have seen is very general and non-actionable. Actionable. <laughs> where is or what is the best source for actionable information on who has ducks and who is bringing them online. Thanks. I look forward to hearing your response, Howard. Yeah. So, so Howard, you're, you're getting into something where there's a lot of talk and, but there's some data and that's always a bad place to be when you're trying to figure something out. Your preference would be a lot of data and a little talk. Um, it's, you know, there, there's, there's, like you said, there's a bunch of people out there talking about drilling, but uncompleted wells. The problem is different states have different requirements about how you report that, which means it's hard to get an overview, a, an accurate overview of what's going on. Um, I've, I've seen everything from where it's like this huge number and, and people are worried that as soon as the price gets to the point that all these uncompleted wells could be completed and would cause another glut of a market, that's not going to happen. Um, it has to make fiscal sense. 
um, the most expensive part is actually uh, drilling that well, not completing it. So these wells will be completed as it makes fiscal sense. Um, James, you have anything you want to kind of throw in around these these drilling but uncompleted wells? Well, I went out there because I obviously kickstarted the content program over at Drilling Info. So I went straight to him, straight to Alan Gilmer because I I've heard him I thought talk about ducks in the past, and and he confirmed that they are big duck hunters. He says he said. And so I've, I'll put in the show notes, there's four different blog posts that Drilling Info has written on drilling but uncompleted wells. And that's a lot of content there. So hopefully that can get you in the right direction as well. Yeah. So Howard, I know it's probably not the answer you wanted. It's just, it's something that we, that's something that here at Modal Point, we have not been able to get accurate numbers on. So, um, but you know, most people out there have this fear that they're all come online at the same time and it's just not going to happen. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll pause right here to thank you again, Howard, for he is the president of Permian Lied, so he's the one who sent the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so thank you again, so how, Howard. Howard, we have something really cool coming your way, and, and but it, we just I'm waiting for it to actually get in to mail it to you. So just sit tight. I promise you we got something for you. Awesome. All right, the Weekly Onion Home Depot employee can tell, can tell this customer's first attempt at pipe bomb. Uh, that makes me laugh because um, I, we used to go to Ace Hardware when I was uh, 10, 11 years old and get everything we needed for Drano bombs. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I can't believe I'm going to admit this on the air, but um, me and my next door neighbor, when we were young teenagers, like 12 or 13, used to actually build pipe bombs. We would get a threaded pipe nipple. Um, my dad reloaded shotgun shells, so we had black powder. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> And we would fill up pipe nipples with powder and uh, screw a, a cap on it and drill a hole in it and stick a fuse and we'd stick them in ant piles. <laughs> these big holes in the ground. And I think about that now. It's like Total there's no beavis and butthead. <laughs> there's no way I'd let my son do that now. But yeah, I've I've, I've done that. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's move on from the self incrimination and talk about Bulwark's winner for the week. And I'm super excited to say the name. So can I go ahead and do it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, good. Say the name. All right, Scott Sidem, Northeast uh, District Manager at Streamflow. Once again, we have no influence over these things, but I, I'd say that the the more you reach out to one or two of us, the more likely you are to win. Because I've I've had I've been in talks with Streamflow and um and Scott for at least a month now. So <laughs> congratulations, that's, brother. Yeah, that's really funny. It's a yeah. Let, let me stress again. This is a total random draw. In fact, James and I don't even do it. Um, Bulwark actually does it. But it is funny that we happen to know the people, some of the people that are winning this stuff. Um, and, and this Bulwark uh, FR clothing is awesome stuff. So you may not know this, but more people arm themselves with Bulwark than any other FR brand out there. And they're also uh, the world's leading FR apparel solution out there, which means they have the biggest selection of fabric styles cuts. So if you need FR clothing for your people, for your company, look at Bulwark. You know, any company that's been doing this for 45 years knows what they're doing. And we're just so happy to have them as a sponsor. Definitely. And um, if you want a chance to win your own Bulwark long sleeve FR two-tone base layer, go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. It's bulwark, B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. Are you ready for NAEP, Mark LaCour? Before we get to NAEP, I'm going to go back to Bulwark just for a second. If you work in an office and you don't ever walk out in the field, think how cool it'll be. All your office mates will be jealous if you actually have field to wear, right? If you have this FR clothing to wear in your office. So, um, you know, even if you never make it out to the field, go enter and go win this because it'll look really cool in your office. Yeah, or 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 at a trade show like Nape. Or a trade show. <laughs> so let's yep. talk about it. Yep, so we have Nape coming up August 10th and 11th. And uh, James, did you see where I made the, um, the Nape promo? I did not. 
Yeah, if you check out social media, I, I actually made the Nate promo, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, this is a great show. This is this is one of our favorite shows, and it's one of our favorite shows because people that go to Nate are going there to buy or sell something, which gives a different atmosphere than most other trade shows. Um, people are very open to talk. Um, people are hiring. So if you're looking for a job, if you're looking to generate new business, if you're looking to get to know more people, if you don't know Upstream, you'd like to learn more about it, come to Nate. Um, it's, it's a great event. Um, Actually, James and I and Patrick will be there. Um, we're looking, James, we're still looking to record a podcast Thursday live. If that's the case, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> you tell me. Yeah. So um, I got some interviews set up uh, out there. Um, uh, Patrick and I report, recorded HSE podcast, which our audience doesn't know yet about HSE podcast, but you will next week. Um, and then James and I are out there to record uh, Oil & Gas this week on Thursday. So if you come, hit us up on Twitter. Let us know. We'd love to connect with you. Yeah, we would love to connect with you. And that's, I can't say it enough, the, the really great thing, the fact that people are there to do deals. You don't, as a, if you're a sales guy, you don't have to worry about going up and, and going straight to the most important person there and, and, and pitching him because that's what he's expecting you to do. Yeah, and it's like I said, it's just the atmosphere is different. There's a vibe, there's a business vibe in the room, even in this low crude price environment. Um, I, I actually interviewed one of the past presidents of the um, of, um, Association of Professional Landman uh, for, for Nate just uh, a couple of days ago. We went out. But anyway, he was talking about in a low crude price environment, more deals are done there because more people are there looking to make money as opposed to when there's a high crude price environment, everybody's making money anyway. So there's not as many deals done at NAEP. And I never thought about that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it definitely makes perfect sense. All right, let's uh, let's we're we're gonna we're gonna eclipse our time, so we'll we'll breeze past the Q and A because this is the Q and A episode. Hopefully, you enjoyed it, and if you didn't get your question in, because a couple few of these questions came in at the last minute, so if you didn't get your question in for this month, go to trybrocket.com forward slash Q A and fill out the form. And Mark, oh my goodness, we have three reviews, but um, the ratings went from 105 to 113. So a lot of people opening the app and at least hitting the five stars, which we, yeah, we fully appreciate. Yeah, we appreciate that. We love a review, you know, whether you like us or you don't like us or you have suggestions, but if you can just go in and give us, you know, a, a rating, I mean, that's, that's good too. Um, let's go through these reviews, James. These are really good. Yeah, let's do it. All right. <laughs> I, I know I never practiced the names beforehand and it always makes me look uh, like a fool, but what else is new? All right, partner, uh, Tiburon Research. Joe Spagnoli, <laughs> five stars. This is the best consolidated update of the energy markets that I have found. Great show, great content. Keep it up. Thanks, Joe. We, that makes us happy. I, I tried to match the, ex, uh, the exclamation marks on there. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks, Joe. All right, and then we've got Bam Dog, sector investor, five stars. Whether, you, whether you're a novice investor or a seasoned tool pusher, I highly recommend you listen to James and Mark for their deep insights on the market. Montley Fool's industry focus is a good product as well, but it only covers the oil and gas industry occasionally. Oh, look at us running laps around Montley Fool. <laughs> Whereas Mark and James provide you with a timely and expansive rundown of industry trends, news, and more every Friday. Thank you and keep up the great work. Thank you, sir. I, I definitely plan on it. What about you, Mark? Yeah, Bam Dog. We could keep it going. Bam Dog, baby. All right. And then, okay, by the way, Scott did do a review as well. So I think that it's reaching out to one of us. You just basically you have to build up your karma points, I guess. I'm not sure how this works, but Scott leaves a review here uh, on the week that he that he wins. So Northeast District Manager, five stars, Scott Seidem, great podcast, a great way to catch up quickly on the happenings in the patch. Thank you for that, Scott. And 
enjoy your two-tone base layer that has nothing to do with you submitting reviews. <laughs> not at all, but we're glad you submitted a review. Yeah, I don't know. People are going to start. We're, we're implanting the, the, the skepticism in their mind, but it is true. All right. So, Mark, we have neglected to talk about the LinkedIn group in at least two or three recent shows. And the LinkedIn group is, I don't know if you noticed, it's kind of getting pretty big. We're over 1250, I think now. We're going to yeah, be hitting 1300 real, real soon. Yeah, it's, it's been growing. And, and so, folks, if uh, you're a fan of this show, James and I have a bunch of other stuff coming out, a bunch of other shows. Um, and you will find out first on the LinkedIn group. But it's also a great place to just to rub elbows with your peers. If you need help with something, um, you know, if, if you want to contact somewhere, if you have a question about stuff, put it on the LinkedIn group. It's sort of the sister to this show, and it's going to be the sister to all the other shows that are coming out uh, this year. So uh, take a couple minutes, go join. You'll be glad you did. Tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn will take you straight there. If you're in LinkedIn and you search oil and gas this week and wonder why the heck can I find it, it's because the group is called Oil and Gas Global Network, OGGN. So if you type in OGGN, it'll actually pop up pretty quickly. If you wanted to get the show notes for this week, if you wanted to find the contact information of a couple of the people that ask questions, maybe network with them because we'd love to see that. If you want to leave a question, see anything to do with this, with this, you can go to tribrocket.com forward slash TW76. And then if you want to share it with your friends, which we greatly encourage you to do and, and appreciate when, when y'all do it, tribrocket.com forward slash LI. Shares that on LinkedIn, tribrocket.com forward slash share TW. Go to Twitter and forward slash share FB or Facebook. Are you ready to get out of here, Mark? Yeah. Folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. slipping my mind right now, Mark. <laughs> oh, that never happens.